Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from somewhere not too far from New York City, coming to us from, I'm guessing, sunny California. We have Harry Littman, who writes for all sorts of things and has his own podcast and was a senior justice official and is a great guy. How are you doing, Harry? Very well, thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you. And uh, we also have our friend Norm Ornstein of AEI, who also writes in lots of different places. And he also does a podcast with us called Words Matter, which he's been doing for a week. How's that going? Are you loving that? I do love it uh, because uh, Kavita's with me and uh, we have fun. And so what you're saying is that Kavita's not here now and you're not having fun? I'm having fun, but I'll have more fun. Even more when Kavita joins. Yes, and Kavita will be joining us. Mm -hmm. Our our theory is that Kavita will be joining us soon. But we're going to start our discussion now anyway. Obviously, the thing to talk about is the first televised hearing from the House Select Committee to investigate the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, which took place on Thursday evening. And I'll start with a simple question, which is, first Norm, then Harry, what'd you think? I was very impressed. And I wasn't sure how they would do the first one. I think if I had done it a little bit differently, I would have led with the video and then gone to the statements, but it worked out fine. And I thought the video was extraordinary and compelling. The witnesses were quite remarkable. You know, this was a Capitol Police uh, person we had not heard from before. That video of her trying to hold back the violent crowd was itself stunning as we watched her sitting there. I also thought that they began to make what over the course of the rest of these hearings will be a very compelling case that this was a vast conspiracy 
to illegally install Donald Trump for a second term by any means that he could, including violence, including hanging Mike Pence, and that it went back long before January, that there was nothing spontaneous about it. Those are important things for a public to know. And it's not going to be the whole public, but I think it's a significant enough part of the public to make a difference. So, Harry, you undoubtedly heard this through you know, ears that have spent time uh, prosecuting and evaluating cases. One thing that struck me, consistent with what Norm said, was there were no weasel words here. This was Donald Trump was at the center of a conspiracy, and they went further, a seven-part conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera. And Liz Cheney really took some time to lay out those seven parts and said, over the course of the remaining presentations that they do, hearings that they do, um, that they're going to make that case. That sounded serious to me. Did it sound as serious to you? Serious as a heart attack. Yeah, they went for it. They went big. The expectations were very high. And I think I'm with Norm. They met them. I could quibble about, you know, five minutes here, five minutes there. But at the end uh, and immediately at the end, they had achieved some very important goals and the ones I would have constructed at the very beginning. First, they had recreated the sort of hellishness and stunning, terrible blow of January 6th itself, which I think had faded from view. And they did that not just by returning to the scene of the crime, but doing it with new footage and new views and that kind of thing. So very good to put that back in everyone's consciousness. And then, as Norm says, you know, some of us paying detailed attention day to day were might have been aware of this, but I think a lot of people haven't been. They drew a, a really important line back just about to the election itself and implicated Trump in all of it. So this series of now it's seven, you could four, five, six, seven, but in any event, continuous efforts from shortly after the election, all of which have his fingerprints and those of his circle of uh, allies and officials on them. And then, of course, they peppered it, punctuated it with some new revelations that were definitely eye-popping, the request for pardons by some of the members of Congress, the things that Trump himself had to say about Pence and the mob. So all in all, and they did it finally with a very well, I think, conceived sense of dynamics. So not just strong information, but changing it up here and there. So the flow was very good. So all in all, it went quickly but was chock full of information. So very high expectations, but they they basically hit it out of the park, I think. I, I agree with what you're, what you're saying, Harry. Uh, to me, there are a few wow moments. Yeah. And I think they were, you know, I got the impression they were working with the former president of ABC News. It was very well paced. They didn't all start with opening statements. They didn't have long, unwieldy videos. Not too much laborious Congress bureaucraties and stuff. No, and and if, you know, if they were going to go and turn to somebody who had 16 seconds worth of soundbite, they gave a 16 seconds soundbite. And it was, it was super impressive. And so Norm, to me, like the Ivanka comments, the Jared comment, the Bill Barr comments, that seemed like 
new news. And I think they were conscious of the fact that unless there was new news, this was just not going to fly. Do you agree? And what were the wow moments for you? Yeah. And I I do think watching uh, Jared talk about whining, just that wasn't new in a sense. The fact that he's a jerk was not new, but that the committee emphasized comments coming from those in the Trump orbit, damning comments, was really striking. To me, the biggest wow moment was when Liz Cheney said that Scott Perry and many other House Republicans had asked Trump for a pardon. That was fascinating on a whole series of grounds. I was just looking back at the uh, announcement of that they, you know they'd captured on internal video in the days leading up to January 6th, a series of members who had conducted unauthorized tours, the tours that were supposed to be blocked because of COVID. And it is the usual suspects. It is Matt Gates, Louis Gohmert, Jim Jordan, Lauren Boebert, and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andy Biggs, I think I mentioned. My guess is that's the start of the list for those who would ask for pardons. But this all suggested to me that we're going to have a number of members of Congress directly, deeply implicated in seditious conspiracy. Uh, I was chatting with some people, including Harry, earlier, wondering what the Justice Department will do if it's faced with indicting a number of sitting members of Congress, all Republicans for that, with Ginny Thomas yet to come, and not quite an allusion to her yet. The second big wow moment was not just the video of the Proud Boys Oath Keepers conspiring in a dark and secluded garage, but the fact that 300 of them didn't go to the rally and cut right to the chase and went straight to the Capitol to scout it out and prepare. And that tells me that, and I think there's a lot more to come, that this was pre-planned. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And I would bet a great sum of money that this was not the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers doing this on their own. There are going to be a lot of links and ties to those very close to Donald Trump and possibly to Trump himself. And I think they're building a case for a broad, vast, deep, seditious conspiracy involving an awful lot of people in public office at the time, others outside, all the way up to and including Donald Trump. So I totally agree they are building that case and we saw them begin to build it. And they actually took a piece of evidence that we knew about and I think are aiming to make it pivotal. That was the December 18th or 19th tweet from Donald Trump saying, come along, it's going to be wild. And they took that snippet and made it the motivating uh, cause of for so many of the, the Proud Boys. I think that and and the knowledge that we that they also showed that Trump and among others had that there was going to be violence in advance his efforts to walk to the Capitol with them make out a pretty damning uh, case of spectacular unprecedented dereliction of duty on his part will whether or not it will be a good enough tie on the uh, on Norm's point of seditious conspiracy. I think they'll need something more than that initial uh, tweet, but that is where they are aiming to to marry up the obvious pre-January 6th efforts 
funding organization, even as among the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, for example, with the White House, possibly, and this came up at the conversation that Norm was talking about, possibly through the intervention of a third kind of group with the kind of shadow figures of uh, Bannon and Flynn and the like, who might possibly look like the connective tissue between the White House and the actual domestic terrorists. As I think about what they were saying, one of the things that struck me that was kind of interesting was there was some reference to the Georgia Secretary of State, Raffensburg, coming in and testifying. And, you know, I, I think it's conventional wisdom now that the case against Trump in Georgia of intervention and meddling in the election yeah. may be the strongest of all the various cases that are out there. And that's something that I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to. You, you, Norm, you mentioned these Congress people applying, seeking pardons. That is going to be just an electrifying moment in the Congress when Liz Cheney or whomever reads this list and says, this guy wanted it, this guy wanted it, this guy wanted it, this it's just going to, I mean, I don't know if the Congress can recover from that. What, what are you, Norm, looking forward to that you think, you know, looms large over the next couple of weeks as those kind of big reveals? And then I'm going to come back to Harry because I got to ask the question and you need to put yourself in Merrick Garland's shoes because yeah. I think big there's shoes, two people that this put in under a lot of pressure. One is Donald Trump, but the other is Merrick Garland. So first, first norm. Let me just say on the, the last point, David, that it also strikes me that the Justice Department is going to have a real dilemma on its hands if we're looking at 10 Republicans in Congress, including some in key positions, who they are able to find were guilty as a part of this seditious conspiracy. And my guess is it involves more than them. One of the things that struck me, David, is, I mean, I've been around the Capitol for 50 years and more. And I've been in a lot of these unmarked hideaway offices. Every senator of significance has one. House leaders have them. You can't find these offices. They don't have any markings on the doors unless you know exactly where you're going. And usually you're escorted there by somebody, a staffer from one of the uh, leaders, one of the senators. They knew. The people going into the Capitol knew they went right to those rooms. Somebody told them that may have been part of those uh, uh, tours that were done. Probably that was. I'm not sure how Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert would have known about a lot of that stuff. There's probably somebody else in a leader's office or in the architect of the Capitol's office. I think you're going to find as they sort through this and peel the different layers of the onion, a lot more people involved in what was a pretty significant conspiracy. What I'm looking for as we go ahead is a fulfillment of the roadmap here. And that roadmap to me is going to tell a story. And that story is that probably starting before the election, probably including this conscious effort to remove from the Defense Department all the top Trump appointees who wouldn't go along with dirty dealing and replace them with his cronies and lickspittles like Cash Patel, and that there were two reasons for that. 
One was an understanding as we move further down the line that they could block the National Guard from going to the Capitol to keep this from turning into the violent entry by hundreds of people that trashed the place, resulted in deaths, and could have resulted in a lot more. The second was, which I think was hatched much earlier, leading up to a possibility of Trump using the Insurrection Act and declaring martial law. And I think the other sort of striking thing, which we kind of knew about but reinforced in the hearing the other night, was that Trump was told that Pence could be hanged. And he basically said, well, he deserves it. And my guess is that part of the planning was that if they can't get Pence either to uh, try to discredit enough electors that they could then send the election right to the House, where remember, it's by state and 26 states could elect a president for a term and 27 uh, states had Republican majorities or remove him from the Capitol and hope that they could disrupt proceedings enough, which he knew about and was not about to get in the with the Secret Service into a car to spirit him away, or see him hanged, members killed, and say, this is out of control and declare martial law. And I'm hoping that we will see that some of this planning took place much earlier, that it was coordinated with a lot of people involved, that it involved the poor boys and the Oath Keepers. I want to see Rudy Giuliani, having had all of his devices seized a long time ago, uh, and Roger Stone and a lot of others who have been directly implicated in this, Alex Jones, have all of this plot laid out in a fashion that makes it very clear that this was not something spontaneous. They've already started to prove that it was not a president who was misled into believing he'd actually won, that he was told over and over again by everybody in authority he trusted that he had lost, that it was a conscious move to overturn the results of a legitimate election and install Donald Trump for a second term, and that he knew it and led it. So, Harry, in many respects, the $64,000 question is, how does the Department of Justice follow up on this? There are people who've made the case that that's not the purpose of these hearings to get the narrative out to the public. But it's not really going to change the minds of people, most people anyway. Another says, you know, I heard today was, you know, establishing the narrative for history. Good. That'll, that'll happen. But the big looming question, particularly if they make the case effectively, is accountability. And I don't recall another moment, you may recall this better, where essentially the Congress or anybody was putting the attorney general on the spot by saying, here's the case, here's the evidence, here are the laws that were broken. What are you going to do about it? Never. Maybe I ran Contra, but I, I will, um, I won't, I'll get to the question you want, but I, I will say that I see it as the thirty-two or $16,000 question. I really do think that their job, you know, we we ask the impossible of them if it's to convince, say, uh, Trump supporters or or if it's to, you know, make the Department of Justice 
cry uncle and say we're bringing an indictment tomorrow. Their job, and it's a very, very important one and an irreplaceable one, right? We had the Warren Commission. We had the um, 9-11 Commission. This is a cataclysmic event in the history of democracy, and it matters deeply that it all be laid out. And I think it's on our shoulders not after they've done that to really respond properly with a political judgment and a historical judgment. Now, that said, what will this do to the Department of Justice? Don't get me wrong, but I think the headline is not much. Not much in the sense of the general kind of feel political feeling in the air that something's outrageous and something, you know, must must happen. I think that Merrick Garland department will be very well um, accustomed to, skilled at, filtering out, and they will not sort of give much weight to a hue and cry. But there's the substance of the hue and cry. There's what it shows about, you know, the perfidiousness of Trump, and the case that they're building. And the case that they're building includes a sort of brazen, you know, compare this, say, with Nixon, as is often done, who had this ultimate uh, institutional uh, consideration to step aside. You have here a um, former president who continues to fan the, the flames, continues to be brazen, said, Two days ago, I think this was like the greatest uh, love in uh, in the history of the republic. That sort of lack of repentance and its effect on the political body is something that they can and will legitimately take into account. So I think to the extent there's vivid revelations, in particular, to the extent there's an ability to draw the through line, as Norm was just talking about, in a way that maybe involves members of Congress or that goes through uh, Stone and Bannon and the like, in the way that there is evidence, they will follow through faithfully. But I was trying to put on my sort of prosecutor's hat as I was listening last night, generally not with my prosecutors at generally with my citizens had and feeling very persuaded and even outraged. But when they got to the core point from Liz Cheney, who, boy, she did pull no punches. How about that, that historic line of, you know, your dishonor will remain in 20 years. But but she said, you know, he that the Trump I don't want to get the words wrong because they're going to matter but basically instigated and lit the flame, how that's going to match up against what would be needed in legal terms to show beyond a reasonable doubt what Norm is talking about, a kind of seditious conspiracy. That's a really heavy-duty legal question that I don't think the department will be influenced on. One final point, though, about the department. Uh, First, I myself have come to the view, I've been fairly conservative here and uh, and have come to the view that the only thing worse than prosecuting him is not prosecuting him. And the case has been long since made, long since made, that he aided and abetted, which is full liability, the obstruction of the January 6th hearing itself, the sort of penultimate charge here. They now are playing at the very highest level of seditious conspiracy. And I think they 
have not connected all the dots for the department, but the department may connect them themselves and, and have superior ability to search out information. But the ability to that that to meet the principles of federal prosecution today, insofar as he's probably guilty and a jury would probably convict, I think is there with one of the most important charges. And that, of course, then will give rise to the welter of considerations along the lines of, is this the best thing for the country, which probably will involve the president. But so this is a a long-winded answer of saying the the department will zealously stay to and be able to stay to its independent judgment, but that independent judgment ought to permit it already to go forward on a serious charge. Not yet, but it will steadfastly pursue the even more serious charge that Norm is laying out. So, Norm, let's just follow up on this point that Harry has has laid out there. You know, the Warren Commission didn't really find a lot that was new. It was a big kind of a muddle. It didn't require an additional action. It concluded that the guy that we thought did it, did it. And he had already died. The uh, 9-11 Commission did require certain kinds of action and, and, and a number of things took place after it. It also was a bit of a muddle. It was not as clear cut. But the 9-11 Commission also was in a situation where the United States had already launched a war against the people who had committed these acts. If you look at Nixon, Nixon ultimately was pressured into resigning. So he had this guy do a bad thing and he was pressured into resigning. So, you know, this is different. A case is going to be very clearly made. Now, whether it's a case for seditious conspiracy or obstruction of justice or abuse of power or something, were the Department of Justice not to act, I just think that it would be a political catastrophe. I mean, it seems to me that it would be one of those those moments that would spark such outrage that it could tear apart a party. It could, it could have horrible consequences. What do you think? So, you know, one of the things that uh, has made me a little uneasy is the refusal of the department to prosecute Mark Meadows or Dan Scavino for contempt of Congress. They're relying on an OLC memo that goes back a long time. So that's the Office of Legal Counsel. It's sort of the department's internal lawyers and was reaffirmed by other presidents. Presidents naturally don't want to have their top officials uh, forced to testify in front of Congress. But this was a ruling that basically said they don't even have to appear. The idea that you don't have to appear if you're a senior White House person in front of Congress, if we're not discussing official business, but the potential involvement in a criminal conspiracy to overthrow the political system, you're derelict in your duty, I believe. It's an adher- a blind adherence to precedent. And I mention all of this because if you have a blind adherence to precedent, and that blind adherence is, we are going to operate at our own pace, and we are going to do this systematically, and by the book means you start at the lowest levels, and then you move up uh, from the minnows to get to the bigger fish, and then to get to the whales. That's one thing, because you're not going to follow the vicissitudes of politics. But included in the Justice Department OLC rulings and their longstanding policy is you don't indict a figure, top political figure during a political season. Now, 
I think we've got two things going on here. The first is that we're almost at the point, June, July, where you can argue that we're in, approaching an election. And if they follow their own guidelines, they're going to say, well, we're moving at our pace. But after this, we can't do it until that election is over. It's not a presidential election, but it's a critical election. If you wait until after November, you're very possibly going to be dealing then with a Republican Congress that will do everything it can to hamstring you. And the second part of this that leaves me uneasy is I think we are very close to the point where it is likely that Donald Trump, spurred by what's going on in Georgia and spurred by what the committee is showing, now he knows that they are going to unmask an awful lot of stuff that he didn't want unmasked, that he will declare his candidacy formally for 2024 and then claim that all of this is an attempt to undermine his ability to run and to win re-election or election again. And that puts the Justice Department in a very tricky position. And I worry about that. Now, I'm hopeful that going by the book means that if, and it's not a slam dunk sure thing that you can get Donald Trump for having directed this conspiracy. We don't know about the evidence. Harry can talk about that with his experience far better than I. But I would hope that if they have that evidence, and we're talking about the most serious conspiracy in the history of the country to overthrow the government, maybe the closest we could come to it was the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln and everybody in the cabinet at the same time. But if you can't prosecute somebody if you have evidence that he was engaged in this, then, you know, there's something drastically seriously wrong. Two quick points as the as the former DOJ are here that I just want to want to throw in. First, you know, Meadows, uh, the, the decision on Meadows is a tragedy. He, he gambled one and he he has the most important evidence yeah. that could bury him. And now we're not going to hear it. But one thing to keep in mind, yeah, the OLC memo, I think, is, though though much reaffirmed, it really shouldn't stand up. It is a criminal case. So they could have reasonably concluded that whether or not that's a valid legal principle, you know, beyond they write the OLC ruling, for Christ's sake. Yeah, so no, yeah. in other words, that even if we disavow it, as we could, it's a second point of do we it, can we show beyond a reasonable that he had that intent, given that it was out there? I just want to make, you know, because they take that seriously. Second, I know a lot of people have said this. Oh, no, it's a you know political rule. He'll he'll announce his candidacy. I do not think the Department of Justice would interpret the mere announcement of a candidate. If, if he were to do that next February, I don't think that would mean that the DOJ principle would kick in. Now, of course, if you have a Republican Congress, if he has done it, it's like stepping on a hornet's nest for certain. But I don't think the DOJ policy would be would be barring there going forward because he's a, you know, it's in some vague way the beginning of a two-year political season. Normally, at this point, we take a break. We're not going to take a break right now because We've only got six or seven minutes left. We're on a slightly compressed time frame here. What do you look for in the next six sessions that you think uh, is going to be determinative of that there will be consequences? What could happen that would 
just it would be impossible for for DOJ to look away. All right. So again, I mean, I just think the American people are getting too big a pass here. Pelosi says she did, you know, for the caucus, we're this we're not saying they're going to vote based on on uh, what's happening here, but this has to be done anyway. I've said basically the DOJ will look at evidence, but it's but they won't be, you know, blown away even by the uh, the grandest atmospherics that accompany that that evidence. They'll decide independently, but. It's the, you know, the American people really should be able to listen, form a judgment or, you know, a republic if you can keep it. What I'm personally looking for is for them to um, make good, cash in on notwithstanding Meadows' intransigence. I want to hear about every second of that day. I want to hear about Trump laughing. I want to hear about his, you know, falling it on on TV. I want to hear about his jubilation at the savagery in in Congress. I want them to to do that timeline. Scavino could do it. Meadows could do it, but they'll have to do it by other means. But I think they think they can do that, including through uh, Tiffany Hutchinson, the Meadows's main staffer. Second, I want to hear every little shred of stuff that the Proud Boys do starting early, or, or all the insurrectionists do starting early on. And uh, not just them, everybody other than Trump does to fund this huge rally, to plan it, to bring, you know, arms, everything that went into the planning of what therefore is obviously a pre- uh, drawn up military uh, campaign to overthrow the you know the the government by force or at least forcibly prevent the uh, peaceful transition of power, which is the you know sine qua non of a democracy. So I think they've got granular information there. I want to um, hear about, and then you know look. I think there's a theme here that he dismisses everybody, which gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the only people he's listening to are the are the nuts that come out of the woodwork from here or there. No one had ever heard of Sidney Powell or the or um, John Eastman, whatever. I want to hear about the uh, ways in which their ideas hit home with him personally, and he was forcing his staff who knew better to pay attention to ideas and legal theories that were completely bankrupt from the start, and he knew it. But sort of in that order, I really think the country needs to know, soup to nuts, what was going on January 6th itself from the, from the ellipse to the, uh, and, you know, the grudging uh, tweet to the final tweet. So, Norm. I, I want to follow up and, and ask the same question. As you look to the six remaining sessions, what are you going to be zeroed in? I know that they've got a lot of evidence that we have not yet seen. We know that there's some pretty devastating stuff out there. We know from what the judge just said and requiring John Eastman to turn over more of his communications with the president, that there may well be very direct communications with Trump and others setting out 
the roadmap, the way to try and steal back the presidency through these attacks on the Capitol. I am really eager to see what they might have from Rudy Giuliani. He is not exactly the most careful person, and it wouldn't surprise me that there's some direct communications with Trump there that may lay out more of a both a knowledge of and direct participation by Trump in this conspiracy. But as much as anything, David, what I want is to have this done in a systematic enough fashion that we can see where the plot was hatched. And remember, too, when Trump was running in 2016 and lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz, his first instinct was to say that the election had been rigged and had been stolen from him. So this is a a pattern for him that goes way back. I want to see them lay out what happened leading up to the election, what communications there are with the Department of Defense officials, both to make sure the National Guard didn't get there, and we know that was part of a plot. They could have foiled this uh, uh, break-in of the Capitol. I want to find out who knew from the inside which of those windows were able to be broken and why they went directly to those, how they got to those offices. I want very much to know which members of Congress participated in this, knew about it in advance. And I want people to understand at the end of the day that this was an unprecedented attack on the very basis of our political system, directed from the very top in the Oval Office, and that it is more important than today's price of gasoline or the price of beef or what might happen next with COVID or critical race theory. It is whether you're for democracy or for an autocracy. And let me just say, finally, you know, a number of people last night were saying this hearing is for an audience of one, Merrick Garland. I don't agree with that. I think if a larger share of the public, persuadable voters, as well as Democrats, really understand through these hearings more about what went on and who was involved, that if Garland then and the Justice Department then indict Trump and go to these very high levels, they're not going to buy the massive propaganda campaign that Fox and others will lead, that this is uh, itself a conspiracy to get Donald Trump out of the political arena and destroy Republicans, that they'll understand that this is all being done on the up and up because the actions were anything but legitimate. I have to say, I'm not personally persuaded that there is any defensible reason not ultimately to prosecute Trump and the people who were involved with this, whether it's for seditious conspiracy or abuse of power, defrauding the United States government or seeking to block the normal government activity or or the the issues at at play in the Georgia case. I, I feel that if that doesn't happen, we are going to be unleashing forces we don't fully understand. And having said that, I think if it does happen, there will also be consequences, as you, as, as you indicate. What well, is One more point, David, yeah. uh, which I don't think we should get away from either. 
this isn't just about bringing to the bar of justice the people who engaged in this awful, vicious conspiracy. They're planning the next one. And we have to get an understanding that this was the beta test for the next big one. And the next big one isn't necessarily going to involve a mob storming the Capitol, but an attempt to rig the process in advance, electing people as election officials, as governors in the states who will be more than willing to take the legitimate results in those states if a Democrat were to win and negate them and turn them around and try at minimum to keep a Democrat from getting the 270 electoral votes in 2024 to be able to move into the presidency or stay in the presidency and to once again have the election go to the House of Representatives. And they have allies in the Supreme Court. That needs to be made public and it is almost as important, maybe even more important than simply getting to the bottom of what's going on here. It's a predicate getting to the bottom of what's gone on here, but we got to do whatever we can to prevent it from happening where it's successful. Absolutely right. And I think we also have to recognize that they've gotten away with a lot of it. They found a lot of things that work. They found that if the Senate is of the same party of the president, he's not going to get impeached no matter what he does. We'll find out new things that that happen with the House if the House switches over with courts that are Trump appointed courts. You know, if they slither off the hook on this and other issues, it's going to send a message with regard to what you're talking about, about what they can get away with, how to do it. They're looking at this for the roadmap for that. And that's why it's it's so, so important. And I will be watching and you will be watching and Harry and Kavita and everybody will be watching closely over the next few weeks. I just want to say this is the beginning of our conversation on this. And I, I look forward to talking to you each week as we go through it, because it's a pivotal moment in the history of our country. And uh, sure. I'm not sure everybody realizes that, but I, I strongly believe yeah. that. Well, thanks, Norm. Sure. Uh, thank you, Harry. Thank you, Kavita, wherever you are. And thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back with more of this as these hearings continue over the next several weeks. And we're going to focus on these hearings for the next several weeks here on this, our end of the week podcast. Uh, bye-bye, everybody. Take care of yourselves.